0: Welcome to Your Gal Friday, a podcast about female leaders, innovators, and rule breakers. Each week, your hosts, Kate and Phoebe, will shine a spotlight on an amazing gal and talk about what we can all learn from her. Brought to you by Gal's Guide to the Galaxy. Welcome to the first episode of Your Gal Friday. I'm Kate Chaplin. And I'm Phoebe Freer. Today we're talking about a gal who created the framework that would make movies last over a hundred years. Her innovations include being the first to tell a story on film, first to use sound, first to feature interracial cast, she created the music video, and she was the first female to run a studio which was the largest in pre-Hollywood America. Yet there's a strong chance you've never heard of her. Today we are talking about your gal, Alice Guy Blaché.
1: I am so excited to be talking about Alice because you and I are both filmmakers. I mean, that's actually how I found you originally, Kate, because you recorded a talk about women directors, and after I heard you speak about that, it really, like, touched my heart, and then I reached out to you. Aww. Um <laughs> Yeah, I'm, like, really, really excited about that. And then you responded to me, which made my entire year, so... And th- and now we're here. <laughs> Well,
0: your message to me made my entire, you know, day, life, year.
1: This is why you reach out to
0: other people in your field. This is why especially you reach out to other women. Exactly.
1: <laughs> exactly. So Alice's film career is certainly something to be really remembered and admire. She made her first film when she was 23, which I thought was really amazing because I'm actually 23 right now. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And she, uh, she managed to make films, start her own production studio, and raise two kids, all while there was still the stigma about independent women who are more than just housewives.
0: Exactly.
1: So, Kate, when did you first learn about Alice?
0: It was actually just four years ago, which is a crying shame, because <laughs> I've been studying film since I was ten years old. I actually started with Charlie Chaplin, and I checked out every book that my local library had. There was no books on Alice. There was no mention of her. And I went to UCLA for film school, and again, there was no mention of her. Um, when I was asked to give a talk of what it's like to be a female director at a university, which is the video that you saw and emailed me, which is awesome. Uh, but when I was asked to do that, I started panicking inside. You know, me speak for, you know, thousands of female directors. How dare I? Uh, so I started to look up the female directors before me to kind of glean some wisdom from them. And that's when I found Alice. And so that's adorable. We have both kind of found her around the same time. So, Phoebe, where did Alice grow up?
1: So as I was researching Alice, I thought it was very interesting to find out that her parents were actually from Chile. And Alice was the fifth child, though. And her mom was desperate to have a child born in France for some reason. Like, she wanted a French child. And Alice was her last child, and Alice's mom was pregnant. They traveled to France, and Alice was actually born in Saint-Maud in France. However, soon after she was born, her parents had to travel back to Chile. So they left Alice in France with her grandparents, which I guess is cool. I mean... <laughs> happens. So when she was about, like, three or four, she went back to Chile with her family, and so there she learned Spanish. So she knows French and Spanish at this point, Mm -hmm. which is pretty amazing for a child, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Um, Alice's father owned a bookstore, which I thought was really cool, because that means she already has some kind of background in storytelling. So when she was six, she moved back to France for school, and she went through school for quite a time and then um, her father's bookstore business kind of fell apart. After that she kind of went to a more affordable school and then she went on to find a job so she could support herself and her mother. Her job was actually she trained as a typist and a stenographer which I also find interesting because there's this ongoing connection with her in technology and writing and storytelling like she's she's always has this growing connection with that. I personally think that some people were just simply born to be filmmakers and then that we foreshadow our own lives. And I really feel like Alice did that. Her Father was a bookstore owner. She she started out writing like those are the little things that like if she was a movie, these would be these would make it to her movie because it's foreshadowing what she's eventually going to become, which I think is really cool.
0: Absolutely. It like lays the the framework for herself. Yeah.
1: Totally, yeah. So, Kate, what do you think made Alice aspire to be a filmmaker in the first place? How did she even hear about film? Because it really wasn't that common at this point.
0: Right, exactly. Research shows that while she was working as a secretary at the Goumont Film Company, which at that time was just still photography, Uh, they had not made into the leaps and bounds of film just yet, But she attended a Lumiere Brothers event that showcased moving pictures, you know, film. (laughs) And the the movie that they showed was workers leaving the Lumiere plant in Lyon. Uh, And something just clicked inside Alice uh, that it would be more exciting to tell a story in a moving picture. So she asked her boss at Goumont uh, for permission to make a film on her own time. And she made The Cabbage Fairy, which is considered by many to be the first narrative Or the first story film. Uh, Though some historians argue because there was a narrative film by Goumont himself and there was one by Georges Méliès very close to that same time. Basically, like everybody saw the Lumière video (laughs) and went, let me try something. Uh, So, you know, it's up to contention. But, you know, we're going to say it's the first narrative film just because we're going to see a repeating cycle of her not getting credit (laughs) for what she has done. However, if you Google things, you know, because we Google things all the time, if you Google it, the first narrative film that comes up is the great train robbery in 1903 by Edwin S Porter, but the cabbage fairy was made in 1896. (laughs) So if you can do basic math, you can kind of tell which one was first. Um, it is important to note, though, uh, at this time in history when we're talking about, film was brand new. It wasn't even an industry that we know today. It was something that was seen that would never make money and having no commercial value. So records and documents and all that kind of stuff wasn't important. And um, I guess you can say having no commercial value. Well, if you're an indie filmmaker, times haven't changed much. Oh, oh, oh the truth hurts. So painful jokes aside, though, uh, the records of films and the fact that the films uh, themselves were even saved from the 1890s, Uh, they were not seen as something with a shelf life. So what events led her to pursue film, Phoebe?
1: Well, I think Alice pursued film partly out of necessity, partly out of curiosity and creativity. The photography company she worked at went out of business, but Alice saw the potential in moving pictures. And she had the mind of an inventor and imagination of an artist. And that's a dangerous mix if you're asking me, because uh, Watch Out World, Alice is coming through. She's a filmmaker. Those are still the essential things you need to be a filmmaker. And she had it from day one. Oh, yeah,
0: absolutely. The combination of inventor and imagination of an artist. Oh, yeah. Fiercely, like, you know, standover world.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So what did Alice do to prepare herself to be a filmmaker?
0: I think courage. I, that is probably the you know the one word explanation that I would say from the research. I mean, according to her autobiography, she said, "Gathering up my courage, I timidly proposed to Gumont that I would write one or two short plays and make them for the amusement of my friends. If the developments which evolved from this proposal, which is the global success of the motion picture business, it could have been foreseen, then I probably would have never obtained this agreement. My youth, my lack of experience, my." sex all conspired against me. <laughs> but she also looked at what her fellow early filmmakers were doing and she incorporated those elements. She used what the Lumiere brothers and what Millier were doing, but she was brave in like combining those elements like hand tinting And also combining dance and travel films. I think she used this beautiful balance of her father's work of being around books and storytelling. And also their seemingly travel lifestyle. I mean, it really gave her a unique and like worldly view that prepared her to be a filmmaker. Um, But how many films did she make?
1: It is thought that Alice made over a thousand films. Which is is amazing. It's incredible. Like, it's absolutely incredible. I mean, the Lumiere's made about 50 films themselves, and we know more about them than we do Alice. Yep. George Melies made about 500 films. And Alice still made more than they did. Um, D.W. Griffiths made roughly 500 films. 22 of Alice's films were feature length. Nice. She was in the business for 25 years, and she made over 1,000 films. I read that she made between one and three films a week while she had kids. Like, that's incredible. Oh my like my <laughs> goodness.
0: There's no way I could do Me that. Me neither. I mean, <laughs> I am ambitious,
1: but man, that's a lot. <laughs> but out of those uh, roughly a 1,000 films, only about 350 of them survive to this day. Yeah. But just looking at her IMDb page is crazy because you just scroll and scroll and scroll through all of these film names. You're like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. And I also took the liberty of looking at her. Do- she her daughter has an IMDb page, and her daughter was in a few of her films as an actress. So I thought that was really cool. Oh, that's adorable. Yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine all of that though. It's like it's real dedication. And starting at Galma and then becoming head of production, she, she was she owned her own production company, and had children and made one to three films a week, like all at the same time. And she was twenty three. I mean, she's, amazing. She blows my mind. She was the head of production from 1896 to 1906, and then her final film, her final film for Gaumont, was the first biblical movie ever made, called La Vie du Christ, or The Life of Christ, and it's sometimes called The Birth, The Life, and Death of Christ. There was 300 extras employed. The film used sound and special effects like double exposure. She went into filmmaking, and she's like. Not only am I going to make a narrative, not only am I going to make a story, I'm going to, like, try new things. Do stuff like double exposure or techniques like running the film backwards. Like, I was like, how did you think of doing these things? Because I can go and watch a movie. Oh, okay. I, I can recreate that. But... How often do I go, oh, I wonder if I can do this random thing that nobody's ever done? How often does that happen?
0: Not often. It doesn't happen that
1: often. <laughs> <laughs> she just amazes me, honestly. That just further shows that she not only had a brain for storytelling, but a technical brain as well with the ingenuity which is still to this day the magical mix that we all need to, to make movies.
0: Absolutely. In
1: 1907, she became the production manager for Graumans operations in the United States, and then she married Herbert Blachet. In
0: 1910, Alice and Herbert and George A. Maggie uh, started their own studio, the Solax Company, in Flushing, Queens, New York City. Uh, they became immensely successful in the first couple of years, and then they moved to where many of the early film studios were based pre-Hollywood, and that was Fort Lee, New Jersey. Solax soon became the largest pre-Hollywood studio in America. This place was really cool. It was an all-in-one operation, in-house film processing, stages with glass roofs, state-of-the-art stages, Set fabrication work, costume departments, and administrative offices. I would have loved to see pictures, floor plans, and just be in this building in today's day and age. (laughs) Totally. Oh my
1: gosh. And at Solux, Alice had this large sign that said, Be Natural. But by the time film came around, theater was definitely more a well-known storytelling medium than film. And as you may know, when you act in theater productions, you have to over-exaggerate everything so that the audience can read it. But on the flip side, you don't need to exaggerate anything on film because the camera picks up every last detail. And somehow Alice instinctively knew this and was always telling her actors to be natural and to fight the urge to exaggerate acting. And to this day, that's still difficult for some actors to go from stage to film because of the overacting. But Alice, maybe knowingly, maybe unknowingly, she formed the framework for modern acting and filmmaking today. Like, these techniques and ideas that she used are still relevant 100 years later. And she was a mastermind of film before they even existed.
0: That's something that actually it makes me think of when I do look at films by Millier and the Lumiere brothers. There's a lot of overacting. Really there's is, a lot of yeah. pantomime that's happening. Yeah. But there was not in Alice's films. No. Um, another thing that actually totally amazed me about her career was her use of sound. Um, In 1908, she succeeded where Goumont failed uh, in using the, I'm going to say chronophone, that's what I'm guessing is the closest way of saying Feel like it. like, that's right. A chronophone? Sounds about right. Sounds like it should be a song. Yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> but a chronophone is a large, it's like a record-like disc, and it accompanies the image, but it wasn't just music. It wasn't basically somebody playing on a piano in the background like a lot of silent movies were. It was actually synced to the film, and it was not only the early predecessor to music videos, uh, but also talkies. So now, when I was in school, I was taught that the 1927 jazz singer was the first feature-length film with synchronized sound. And I even quizzed my husband. I'm like, hold on a second, what's the first talkie? And he's like, the jazz singer. I'm like, oh, is it? (laughs) (laughs) Now the technical fun here is that the jazz singer used the phone, basically, it was also a record looking like disc that went along with a picture. So it's not that far off what Alice and Gumont were doing with the chronophone in 1902, not
1: 1927, 1902. Right. It was crazy. <laughs> Something that amazes me is like how hard she worked and her dedication and ingenuity all before the film medium was popular I know my own love for film and yours too, Kate. I know how creative and inventive you have to be while also doing what is best for the story. Yeah. And I understand the collaboration that's involved and you have to understand technology. And Alice really, really did all of those things. She got her hands dirty and she tried new things, just like you said with the sound, mm-hmm. she had to experiment and think with her own mind, and women really weren't expected to, com- to contribute as much as all that.
0: She was also brave and adventurous, too, because she made a film in 1912 called A Fool and His Money. And it's said to have the first all African American cast. And it's about a man who saves up money to buy some fancy secondhand clothes to impress his girl's rich family. I mean, this is this is, you know, your standard story. I could see Charlie Chaplin basically being in the story,
1: right, (laughs) Um,
0: and it's an adorable little 10-minute short. Um, However, in the same year, there was also William D. Foster, who was the first African-American man to start his own film company. Now, he released and directed an all-African-American film as well called The Railroad Porter. So Foster was based out of Chicago, and it is really hard to say which film was first, but here's the thing. They were both revolutionary, they were both important, and both the films were very profitable as well. So many of Alice's films also featured in a cast before D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation in 1915, which is generally what pops up on a search. Right. So Phoebe, what obstacles did Alice face while she was filming?
1: Um, Well, there was still this thought that women need to either be housewives or career women, but not both. Right. Well, Alice was pregnant with her second child when she started her own production studio. And she was both a mother and a career woman in film before it was popular. And I can only imagine how much grief she got for having both of those things at the same time in that time period. it's, It's still today difficult to do that. I can't even imagine what it was like then.
0: Yeah. Well, being pregnant and filming, it totally speaks to me. <laughs> yeah. uh, because for my second for real movie, uh, basically, I always call my for real movies are ones that I intended to show a public audience. That makes sense. <laughs> Otherwise, I was just kind of making them on my yeah. own. <laughs> but for my second one, I was actually pregnant with my second daughter. There are times kind of looking back that I think that on that site that are on that set, everybody was the nicest to me. And it was simply because I was pregnant. Uh, In retrospect, I actually wish that the films that I made while my daughters were in their terrible twos, I wish everybody would have been nicer to me because I felt like I actually had a lot more stress going on then. Uh, But those were indeed uh, rougher times than pregnancy. When you're pregnant, you're just more mindful of going with the flow, not getting too upset or stressed. Um, it, It happens, but you feel like you have more accountability just to kind of... Take it slow and go with the flow. Also, I don't know if this is true to Alice, but my kids motivated me. They were on my sets. Uh, They saw the work that I did and how hard it was and how rewarding it was. So when I was away on set and they weren't with me, they at least knew what my day-to-day looked like. And I don't think many kids get to see what their parents' day-to-day job looks like.
1: Totally. I mean, that's really cool. That's actually something I'm hoping... To strive for in my future is that kind of thing. Another obstacle that Alice faced, for better or for worse, when she went into film business with her husband, she made him the director of the company of Solak so that she could focus on the aspects of filming she loved the most. Like, she made him the director. He wasn't already the director. Like, that was her handing him, here you go, I'm letting you do this for me kind of thing.
0: Exactly. I can handle this, but I'm better over here, so you're going to do this. Right.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So they worked together on a lot of projects, but um, he went off and he was like, oh, I'm the director of this company. I'm going to go start my own now, too. Mm-hmm. So they were both competing and working together on so many different uh, projects. I kind of was like I was talking to my grand before we recorded this podcast. I was like, I wonder why Alice and her husband like split up because like, right. they split up down the line. Let me guess. He had a big ego. He wanted all the fame, and then he, like, went off and cheated on her or something. Mm-hmm. Well, I do some research, and guess what? They, he started competing with her, and he found this actress and had an affair with her, and then they were only married, like, 10 years, if my math is correct. Yeah. And he went off and left his wife and children, and they went off to Hollywood while she stayed behind, and... Uh, I don't know. It makes me really sad because she did all of this uh, amazing things. And then the ending to her, at least her marriage, was so cliche when it comes to filmmaking. It's like, this is what always happens. Like It's so sad. You know what's
0: ironic, though? It was so early on. It's kind of like they created the cliche. They did.
1: They did. It's like,
0: how did you do that? It wasn't a cliche then. (laughs) Right. Apparently there's something in filmmaking from the very beginning. Right. (laughs) That if you have two creative people, two actors, two directors, two writers. Right. That, uh, for some odd reason, there's going to be another person in the mix. Exactly. (laughs)
1: Like, there's always conflict. There's always, like, something happening. I can't... I couldn't believe it. It's absolutely sad. Yeah, it really is. Uh, But
0: I I relate to having a husband in the mix, though, because, oh my goodness gracious, my first few films, I I hadn't...
1: It can all work out, like, in the end, right? Like... (laughs) it can it can yes mine is
0: a happy story like like, mine is not (laughs) you know oh my goodness you know my husband also ran away with an actress. No, 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 he's still here. But he was involved in my first few films. And he, I had him involved in brainstorming and problem solving. He was the person that I would bounce ideas off of because, you know, I didn't have a network then. Right. I put him down as my executive producer on the first films that I did, because in my mind, he was paying for them. <laughs> right. I was I was a stay at home <laughs> mom. I was working on writing. There was not checks coming in for writing. Uh, so I felt that he had paid for them. Um, but by the third film, I just realized that it wasn't a good idea for either of us to be in that high stress environment. I needed him to be able to be the supporter on a rough day and not the cause of a rough day. Right. That makes total (laughs) sense. You know, you need somebody to vent to, somebody who wasn't there, (laughs) so that you can over-exaggerate if you need to about the badness of the day. (laughs) So I feel for Alice. I mean, I feel for her, you know, not only being left by, you know, her husband for another woman, but I also feel for the bad investments that, you know, they caused her to close her studio and stop making films. I mean, that kind of leads us into... What do you think she could have done differently if she could have?
1: I mean, as an outsider looking in, like if I was Alice, I kind of I would have paid more attention to the business side of things because I get the feeling that that was she kind of just left her husband do all that. She's like, I trust you. I'm just going to do my thing and be creative. You got the business side. Everything will work out fine. Yeah. And so she didn't really have a knowledge of the business side. Uh, but she was really intelligent. She could have figured it out if she had, if she had seen it, you know. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. So if I were her, I would have tried to be in charge of my her own finances, and then, and not just rely on her husband. And maybe she wouldn't have lost so much because, like you said, her husband left, and then before the divorce was finalized, she made her one final film, and then she was done. She didn't make any more films, and she lived to be ninety two. That's a long time. That's a long life. Yeah, right? I mean, it's both understandable and sad that she trusted her husband and then everything fell apart.
0: Right. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I, I also think that, it, you know, if she would have been able to learn from her father's bankruptcy right, um, with the book business, um, maybe she might have been able to prevent, you know, Herbert's bad investments. Maybe. maybe. Who knows? Um, but it's, it's just also seems like the shame of it all yeah. kind of stopped her. Um, there was the bad investments, but then also there was was the affair and if her relationship was still good with gumont or maybe even another film company they could have helped her out right. they could have either uh helped Solax go you know keep going like a partnership like a lot of film companies merged but also she could have uh gone to work for another company um she did try a successful she did try to have a comeback in 1927 but the film world had become financially successful by then, and that meant very little room for women in positions of power. So then, you know, one question, which, you know, we also don't know, but we can we can talk about and speculate, is did she know her success uh, that when she got there? Um, did she have to have somebody to tell her? Did she ever really know the success and the impact that she would have?
1: I mean, I feel like... As a filmmaker, I don't always know in the moment if I'm a success or if I have an impact. Um, But I feel like she was in filmmaking for 25 years. I feel like eventually she got a clue that, hey, I'm doing something really cool here. I have some sort of impact on this industry. 25 years is a long time. Absolutely. I'm pretty sure that eventually she realized it. After her divorce, she went back to France. Right. For like two years or something. And then she came back to the United States, and after she came back, she realized she had some, done something really great, but it was almost too late to tell the world because the industry had already moved on. They've already kind of forgotten about her. Like, she was like, hey, I'm Alice Guy Blanchet. And they're like, who? It's just really sad to think about that. Like, she she kind of, and she lived long enough to kind of watch herself be forgotten. So yeah. I, um, I can only imagine how much that would impact On yourself, but since she saw herself being forgotten already, she wrote an autobiography about herself. I think it was almost like a self-defense mechanism so that somebody somewhere would still remember her down the road. Her daughter, I believe, actually helped, like, found her book and helped publish it. So we can actually read it now.
0: Right. That's what Uh, I read, too. It was found after her death and translated as well. And I have never seen this book on a shelf. I have to go find this book out. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I have to go like order it on Amazon or something. Yes, you know? <laughs> but I can't blame her for trying to, for writing a book and trying to preserve her own legacy because we still barely know about her today, and it's a hundred years later. You know, we should know more about. Yeah, her. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, all, for impact, I also think you know, as a as a filmmaker, we. We know that our projects are kind of, they become extensions of our children um, right. because we know what it takes to make them. Uh, and we do know how they influence others. We also know the brave choices that we have to take to just get them into the world. But the hard part is feeling like it matters. <laughs> right. Uh, that's a hard one for any filmmaker to know, uh, let alone when film is being created, when it's, you know, starting to become an industry. I think that uh, Alice knew she was successful at the time because at least she was paying the rent. (laughs) She could build a studio. You know what I mean? Like the studio was still standing. There was money coming in. But I'm sure that uh, that hard truth, uh, that names like Lumiere and Goumon and Thomas Edison and Griffith, that they would be in the history books, but not hers. Um, And I mean, my goodness. Yeah, her last film was 1920. And she died in 1968. That is such a long time to see film. I mean, if you just think of film itself from 1920 right. to 1968, it has become blockbusters have become a right. thing. Movies, right. the golden age of Hollywood has happened. Um, you see this thing that you created become profitable and you're not seeing any credit for it. So right. why do you think we uh, we don't study her in film history?
1: Um, I think that's a good question, and I can't really explain it, to be honest, because the more I research about her, the more I'm like, why are we not modeling everything we do off of this woman? Right, exactly. Um, And the men who worked at the same time period as her got a lot of recognition, and yet in the movie Hugo, when I first heard about George Melies, I heard no mention of Alice. I mean, there's nothing in the books about Alice. There's nothing in the movies about Alice. I can't help but feel like yeah, maybe men really are trying to push us women out of film, even though Alice and so many other women have such big influence on the industry. And I actually wanted to read this quote that Alice wrote in her autobiography, because I really feel like it just explains her stance on it and our stance on it very well, and I don't have to reword what she says. Not only is a woman as well-fitted to a stage photo drama as a man, But in many ways, she has a distinct advantage over him because of her very nature and because much of the knowledge called for in the telling of the story and the creation of the stage setting is absolutely within her province as a member of the gentler sex. She is an authority on the emotions. There is nothing connected with the staging of a motion picture that a woman cannot do as easily as a man. I feel like that's just extremely powerful.
0: I love yeah. it. See, here's what boggles my mind <laughs> it's her many innovations, the length of her career, the amount of films. And I mean, I just wonder if the only reason why we don't study her in film history is because history is written by the victors. That's something that I learned a lot, right. when, especially when we look at war history. It's written by those who won. It's not written by those who did not. So the victors in this case are the Hollywood ones. They're not the ones at Fort Lee. They're not the innovators who set the groundwork. Um, Sure, credit is given to inventors like Edison and Lumiere. But when it comes to filmmakers like Alice who took those inventions of other people and made it work, made it into a story, made it into a commercial product and gave it value... We remember Millier, but we don't remember Blaché. (laughs) Millier and Blaché, they were both actually seemingly kicked out of the film industry that they helped create. In the 1920s, they were kind of pushed aside. Both of them could not get work. But in 1929, uh, Millier was once again recognized for his work, and he was champion. I mean, the movie Hugo and the book Hugo is an example of finding Millier again. And the, the Lumiere brothers also helped in this regard, too, of bringing him back to the forefront. Now, Goumont was seemingly not there to help Alice come back to film in 1927, um, although the son of Goumont, Louis Goumont, did try to help Alice get the recognition she deserved in the 1940s. Uh, he helped her with speaking engagements and lectures and tours. But Millers and Goumont, That's overseas. That's very easy for American film history to be ignored. But Solax was an American film studio. And it was actually cited as being the largest in pre-Hollywood. So in the construction of that time... We remember D.W. Griffith, but we don't remember Blaché. So I'm going to go on perhaps a controversial limb and actually go on a little bit of a rant. I'm going to blame Louis B. Mayer. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to blame Louis B. Mayer. So a little bit of background on Louis B. Mayer, if you don't know. He started his career in 1907, which is right around the time that Alice came to America. He bought a vaudeville theater in Boston. Then he bought four more. In 1914, he bought the exclusive rights to show Birth of a Nation, D.W. Griffith's film, and it made mayor a lot of money I mean, a lot of money. <laughs> they actually said at one point they stopped counting how much money Birth of a Nation kept making. Oh my word. That's how much. <laughs> it's crazy. But this allowed Mayer to move to Los Angeles and start his own film production company. Now, through mergers and deals and company transferring, it became MGM, or Metro Golden Mayor, Mayer being him, of course, in 1924. Also, part of that merger was Lowe's, the theater chain. Now, this means that MGM owned both the production and the distribution. And it actually created a monopoly for 24 years of the oh golden gosh. age of Hollywood. Yes, it was highly illegal and eventually stopped, but it was stopped after the golden age of Hollywood. So in 1927, Louis B. Mayer came up with the idea of the Academy Awards. Uh, it was to be an organized group to benefit the film industry. It would be a yearly presentation that would cement in people's minds the importance and, of course, the wholesomeness of the film industry. He was very much on the wholesomeness.
1: Of course. Mayor was
0: very protective of the film industry... But also, how it was perceived. He's the one that created the star system that we still have. He controlled the stars, telling them where to shop, where to dine. He arranged marriages and photo ops, and he hid any possibly perceived negative behavior from the press. Some actors loved this, some despised it. <laughs>
1: Uh, I can't blame that. Right,
0: exactly. Some of them called him a father figure. Some of them called him a dictator. (laughs) Right. But Mayer was so influential on the film industry that uh, his biographer, Scott Ehrman, said, quote, Mayer's view of America became America's view of itself. So for me, it's, it's not hard to see how far reaching Mayer's reach was. I mean, he ran a major studio. He ran the theaters that showed them the stars that were in them, and to a certain extent, the awards that they received oh <laughs> you know to showcase them, right? right? So when we wonder why the history books, there is so much about D.W. Griffith at the birth of cinema and not Alice, well, Louis B. Mayer simply did not make his fortune off of her like he did Griffith.
1: Oh, shocking. And Garbo
0: and Elizabeth Taylor, and Mickey Rooney, right? So it's one of those things, it's, it's money, it's loyalty, it's victory. All those things shape our history. And Louis B. Mayer had all those things when he was shaping what we remember about early film. So that's my rant on why I think we don't remember Alice. But luckily, there's this thing called Google, and there's shows like ours... <laughs> Right. <laughs> they can kind of lift the curtain and be like, no, no, no. There was somebody back here forgotten and they can still be remembered.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. It's so interesting. I always have a mixed emotions feeling the Academy Awards right. every single year. OK, I want to I want to laugh and I'm glowing. I'm like, this is the best thing ever. Yeah. And two seconds later, I'm crying. I'm not even exaggerating here. I'm literally I laugh and I cry every. Academy Absolutely. Awards. I do, too. Because it's like it's it, it's it's so beautiful. And it's so fake, but it's also so real. And what is it? Like, What what is it, you know? Yep.
0: There's a kernel of truth wrapped in an advertisement. That's what I always say it is.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's that's perfect. It really is. Um. When you talk about how it all started, it's like, oh, it's been like this from the very, very beginning. And one yep. guy, it's always been about the money. Yes. And it's like, but Alice was about the story. She's Mm -hmm. always been a storyteller. Absolutely. And I think that's the beauty. That's the beauty of Alice. She is, she should be every indie filmmaker and every filmmaker's role model, really. Yes.
0: Oh, absolutely. Because she was about the art and craft and innovation of it. She had a business. I mean, it's hard. I want to say she was very good at the business. However, the business folded because of bad investments. I'm not faulting her, though.
1: Right. Right. No, totally (laughs) not. All of us have
0: trouble with business dealings. My goodness. You know, uh, even uh, uh, some of the most popular and successful businesses out there came on the heels of bankruptcy of failed businesses before that. So but it's the fact that she wasn't allowed to come back um to be able you know that's kind of the difference that's kind of the sexism that's in there is she She snuck. I wouldn't even say she snuck herself in she saw an opportunity and because there was no money in it she was given an opportunity but once she was out and there was money in it that that door was closed and that's pretty sad (laughs)
1: yeah yeah like Really, guys? <laughs> like, but when we're thinking about it, like, what do you think the kind of legacy she wanted to leave behind? In her
0: autobiography, which I, I, I haven't read all of it, but I have read, uh, you know, clips and, and things from it, though. But when she talked about seeing Lumiere's first film, you know, of the workers just simply leaving a factory, she said, I thought I could do it better. So for me, I kind of think that that's the legacy she wanted to leave behind. Just take something that had so much untapped potential and just make it better. And I think that is beautiful.
1: (laughs) It really is. I think you're so right. I think she just wanted to show how versatile and how beautiful film can be. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So what legacy do you think that she actually did leave behind?
1: Well, for me personally, she left behind the encouragement to dream and to create. She gave me the hope, like hope for the future. And these are just like kind of legacy things that she left behind for me personally. I mean, some people were born to do this, to be filmmakers. And I feel like I have a little bit of Alice at me. And on days when I feel like giving up, I'll just remember Alice and how she pushed forward for 25 years, raised kids, traveled the world Literally everything I've ever dreamed of doing, Alice did. I love it. I do hope my happily ever after works out better than hers does. But she left behind, despite that, great encouragement to me. She has this ongoing passion for movies, and I never want that to die. I never want what she had to die. So hopefully we can live on that side of her legacy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for film fans who dig into history, that dig into the research. And for those who are just now discovering her, I think they're both going to find just an amazing legacy of innovation and of storytelling. I mean, she really did lay the groundwork for everything that we love about film today. I mean, she laid the groundwork for telling a story, not just turning on a camera and letting things happen for natural acting, for not, you know, overly dramatizing it. And for any innovation like special effects or sound in ways that incorporated telling a richer story. She yeah. didn't do it for the gimmickiness. She did it to tell a fuller story. I think she's a beacon to female filmmakers that we actually did birth this industry and we may not be in the history books or in film classes, But we existed and our inspiration and the story is still there to inspire and to be built upon. So, I mean, my hope is that even though we didn't learn about, you know, Alice in school, that the next generation of filmmakers, male or female, that they will. That they will learn about her, that they will know about her, and they will celebrate Alice Guy Blachet. Absolutely. Do you have any final thoughts, my darling?
1: Alice is really inspiring. She's really inspired me. And, like, I think it's really cool that there's this bug, so to speak, of filmmaking that just comes. And it's like, even though I never heard of Alice before I was, uh, before I decided to be a filmmaker, I was like, no, this is what I want to do. This is how I feel about it. And I know that that's the same thing Alice felt about it. I know that's the same way you feel about it. And I think that's so cool that that bug just kind of randomly comes inside of us is like okay here you are now go find people who are just like you and finding those people is an incredible thrill to me and um, I'm really thankful that uh, for everything Alice did even though we don't really know much about it yeah
0: absolutely I almost think that bug in a a way kind of became tangible for me with Alice saying I think I could do it better I think that is the bug. I think that is the spark Um, for, you know, for any career aspiration. You see something and you think, I could do that better. It's not, I could do that because I could do that. We say that about blase things. You know what I mean? Be like, yeah, "Yeah, no, I could do that. That doesn't mean we're going to. (laughs) Right. Most of the time, But when we see something and we're like, I can do that better, that right. kind of pushes us into a creativity into a career into uh surrounding ourselves with our tribe basically
1: absolutely
0: <laughs> yeah cuz what's absolutely. the point of doing something if you're not going to try to do it better than the previous person who did it
1: <laughs> yeah and with your people
0: yeah absolutely us filmmakers were we're a crazy group but at the same time we get each other's crazy so yeah. it's really it's really nice that's we're a tribe yeah. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> well, that wraps it up for us. Thank you so much for listening to our first ever Your Gal Friday episode. You can find out more about Alice Blache and our upcoming gals that we will be covering over at galsguy.org. So please subscribe, leave us a comment or a review and share. For more information about this week's Gal, or to check out our previous episodes, visit galsguide.org. To support the show, visit the Gal's Guide Patreon page. We've got great perks like behind the scenes, early access, and private live streams. Thank you so much for subscribing to Your Gal Friday.